Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Welcome to worship. Before we get going, let me announce a couple things, uh, a few things from the back of the bulletin and some things that are not listed here. Uh, first, you're invited. Everyone here is invited to the retirement reception uh, in on Peters at 2 o'clock today. And information is on the back of the bulletin if you are able and would like to attend that. Um, the youth are not meeting this evening. We will not have evening worship and a couple other things we won't be having. We won't be having fifth Sunday supper today. So if you brought some food, you can just take it home and eat it there. And we will not be having life night this week as there are repairs going on at the Family Life Building. We will give you information when we know, uh, when we expect to be able to start back on those types of things. So keep an eye out for information on that. Let's see. Uh, the ladies' Bible study is meeting tomorrow at 11 a.m. in the church library, and there's information there. If you would like to join, if you haven't been able to come yet, uh, feel free to join at any time if you're able and would like to do that. Uh, those are our announcements for this morning. Uh, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ has brought us here by his power, and he invites you to worship him. So take a few moments uh, as the music plays, to gather your thoughts and ask God to help you worship this morning. Let's do that now. Our call to worship this morning is an old call from the Presbyterian Church of New Zealand. 
The scripture is based upon Matthew 11, uh, verses 28 through 30, and it begins with uh, the scripture part of the call and then a small derivation thereafter. If you'd please stand with me for the call to worship. If you are tired from carrying heavy burdens, come to me and I will give you rest. Take the yoke I give you, put it on your shoulders and learn from me. I am gentle and humble and you will find rest. This yoke is easy to bear and this burden is light. Christ calls us to come to worship, to rest from the things that are troubling us, to learn what Christ can teach of life to realize what we can offer to others, and so in, to return into the world to serve. Let us worship God. As we sing uh, hymn number 164, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Pray with me, please. O Lord, our God, if only we had a thousand tongues to sing of our Redeemer's grace, and even that we would not be, even at that, that we would not be sufficient to express the magnitude of the grace that has been offered to us by your Son's sacrifice for us. We are called together this morning for worship and to ask for the forgiveness of our sins, realizing that without your grace, our sins would doom us. So we ask for forgiveness and for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to help us to keep sin away from us. Take away temptation that is always around us 
And when we inevitably fail, we give thanks for the knowledge that we will be forgiven. We are called together this morning to also hear your word proclaimed, and we pray that our hearts will be open to the understanding of it. And we pray that you will send us from this place of worship with a new felt heart and mind in which to serve you and our fellow man. Father, you have taught us how to pray and what to pray for through your word. And now we pray your prayer together, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Today our confession of faith is the recitation of the Apostles' Creed. If you will join me in reciting the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered unto Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the queen and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please be seated. As we have a time for prayer, we are walking through different parts of the Apostles' Creed to focus on in this time of prayer. And this morning, we come across this part of the Apostles' Creed that says, And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Um, This is where Christianity is unique. Apart from all other religions in the world, our faith confesses Jesus Christ as the Son of God, our Lord. And that means, Jesus Christ means anointed Savior. He is the one whose name means God saves. God saves sinners. As Christ, he is the Messiah, the one who is promised to save sinners. And so we confess Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Savior of humanity. And that is a massive an important statement to declare and to believe. So we're going to go into a time of prayer where we focus on this and worship God in this time of prayer. So if you would, please join me as I pray. God, we thank you for another moment to gather as a body and to pray together. Lord, we pray according to your word as we have read it, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Dear Father, you chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before you. In love, you predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace, with which you have blessed us in the Beloved. Lord Jesus, in you we have redemption through your blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of your grace which you've lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of God's will according to his purpose, which he set forth in you, Jesus, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in you, both things in heaven and things on earth. God, when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and we believed in Jesus, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Lord Jesus, in you we live and move and have our being, and we worship you together as one body. In the outworking of your love, Lord, you've brought sinners to the knowledge of your love here in this church and across the world. We pray as one body for our members and for the ministries and friends and neighbors that are a part of our lives. God, in particular, we give thanks for the successful procedures for Robert Higginbotham. We pray for continued growth in strength and mobility, that you would continue to encourage Carol as she cares for him, and that you would be with their family in a great way. God, we thank you for Dr. Peters and all of the many years of service he has given to the care uh, of the health of many in this county and many others. We pray that their, uh, the reception today would be a time of uh, great thanksgiving for the blessings that you have given him and for the blessing that he has been for so many lives. God, we pray for uh, Dr. Suttle and Sam Junior, as they are in Trinidad this week, we pray for team unity, as they have asked. We pray for strength and perseverance as they prepare and begin their work that they have set out to do for your glory and for the good of your people. God, we thank you for Jimmy Turner, who uh, grew up in this church, who grew up in Louisville. We thank you for his ministry, his family, and we pray that his loss will continue to point others to you. And God, we also pray for Elias Medeiros' wife who fell and is in the hospital this morning. Uh, We don't know more details than that, Lord, but you do. You know all that's going on. You are the God of all care, the God of all comfort. Would you please heal her and bring uh, with the doctors, give them great knowledge and wisdom to be able to care for her well. Lord, as we go on into this worship service, we ask that you would uh, be with us by your Spirit's power that as we sing hymns, that we would be uh, brought to the throne room of grace, that we would glorify your name, that we would be encouraged in our hearts, and that you uh, would continue to work through us throughout this time. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take a few moments now to give our tithes and offerings, and this is a time when God has called us to give in a very physical and real way, which is giving our money. God has given us all things, and this is one portion of which he calls us to be faithful in, giving of our tithes and offerings. So let's take a few moments to do that now as we respond to God's grace.
Please pray with me. God, we give our money to you. We entrust our money to you because you've given it to us. All good things come from you, including our work, our pay, and you call us to give for the work of your kingdom. So would you use our tithes and offerings in ways that would uh, amaze us, in ways uh, that you would be glorified and honored and recognized across the world for what you're doing with your kingdom. So God, we thank you for this time to give, and we entrust it to you, we dedicate it to you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would remain standing, we'll continue worshiping and singing together with hymn number 498, which is Jesus, What a Friend for Sinners, and we'll sing verses 1, 3, and 5, verses 1, 3, and 5 of hymn 498. You may be seated.
I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 1, is where we'll be starting. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. We have been working through the gospel of Mark, and it has been a joy. I've learned a lot myself, and I continue to learn. And this passage in particular, I thought, I usually don't go with a passage that's as short as this, but as I studied it, I found that there was far more here than I will cover today, and I hope that this is encouraging to you as it is to me. So let's read God's word, and then I'll pray for us again. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? His sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me for a moment in prayer. Lord, as we approach your word, would you speak to us clearly? Would you fill our hearts with your grace and your love so that we leave here in amazement of you as we leave here challenged? Would you do these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to do two parts to this passage and then have three applications before we go to celebrate the Lord's table. Uh, The first point is that we're going to look at the wrong kind of amazement, and then we're going to look at marveling at unbelief. So we'll look at the first point, which is the wrong kind of amazement. Maybe you remember this woman whose name is Susan Boyle. Um, Back in 2009, this woman, Susan Boyle, who grew up in a small town in Scotland, Uh, was a participant on the show Britain's Got Talent. And I'm not a fan of these shows, but even I, for some reason, remember this story. Um, No judgment on you if you like these shows. That's okay. Um, She... uh, she comes on to the show, and she has, uh, you know, she, she's 40-something years old. She has an unassuming appearance, and the TV production wants you to believe that this woman is just some no-name person who is coming onto the stage, and they're really trying to set you up for a very big disappointment. You're, you're ready to be embarrassed by this person and their singing. And then she starts to sing the song, I Dreamed a Dream in a beautiful, operatic, if that's a word, voice. And she brings the house down. People love what they're hearing. And after she performs this song and goes on to compete in this program, she eventually loses out. She loses in the final session to a dance group. After this program ends, she becomes extremely famous. Her CD becomes the most, it becomes the best-selling album in the UK of all time. It's wild what happens with this woman's career. 
And so everyone was astonished that this woman could possess such a beautiful voice, or as that's what the show wanted you to believe. People were asking, who was this woman? How come we haven't heard of this person before? Why didn't we know about her? Where'd she get her talent? And the reaction to Jesus was similar, but different in a very big way, as we see in our passage. His hometown is astonished at his teaching, at his wisdom, at his power, and they ask, where did this man get this from? We know this guy. How come we haven't seen or heard of this stuff from Jesus before? Why hadn't we seen this or known about this? And rather than be blessed and be grateful for Jesus and his works and his teaching and his words, they take offense at him. They take offense. If we study archaeology, which I have not, but I have read from people who have, they found out that Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, was a very small town. It was at most 500 people. So if you grew up in Nazareth, you were known by all of your neighbors, by all of your family very well. And so when Jesus visits his hometown with his disciples, he's met with amazement for all the wrong reasons. And their amazement is coupled with insults, as we see in our passage. When you mention someone by their mother's name instead of their father's, it wasn't a nice thing to do. And if you just read their comments, you can sense a general negative tone, like, who does this guy think he is coming here and doing these things? The guy who we thought was just a carpenter, which could be a woodworker or a stone worker, who is this guy, and, and why is he doing these things? How does he get this, where did he get this power from? We learn in this passage that Jesus is the firstborn of five brothers and at least two sisters. And I want to do a, a really brief side, sidebar, side point about this. Uh, for most of us, for most Protestants, when you read this verse, it's, it's a clear and basic statement of the facts of Jesus and his family. Just information about Jesus. But what is not, what's fascinating to me is that the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, which comprise 1.5 billion Christians across the world, uh, they don't see this passage like many of us here do. They believe this passage is referring to children that Joseph Joseph had by a former marriage. So Jesus has half-siblings. And their belief is based on creeds and teachings dating back to the 4th century and later that Mary was always a virgin. And this passage is not primarily about the family makeup of Jesus. And if you're interested in studying this subject, there's plenty out there to read. And while it's not the main point, I think it's important to bring that up so that we can understand, while even in disagreement, with Christians around the world. I believe the simplest reading of this passage is that Jesus did, in fact, have siblings born of Mary and Joseph. But there is love shown in mutual understanding. People who disagree with us on theology, there is love shown in understanding where they come from and what they believe instead of dismissing them out of hand. So I put that as a side note and moving on. 
Verse 3 says that Jesus' family and neighbors took offense at his teaching and his power. And the word for offense means stumbling block. We've come across this term before. Jesus is a stumbling block to faith. Ordinary Jesus, the, the Jesus who grew up among them, astonished them. He astonished them not in the truth or the power of his teaching or even his miracles. They were astonished that the mere Jesus was doing these things, that a mere man was doing these things. In verse 4, if you want to read with me, it says, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus is using a proverb that was likely well-known in that area, in that society, to point out the sad and ironic rejection of the Son of God by the people who knew him best. As I thought about this passage, this verse, uh, or this proverb, uh, made me think about sort of my own life and some of the experiences you have might have had in your life. Uh, perhaps you became a Christian later in life, and I talked to uh, some people in our church about this earlier in the week. Perhaps you can't, became a Christian later in life, and you want to share about the gospel with your non-Christian and non-Christian friends and family. And when you share with them, maybe you have the experience where they're very comfortable rejecting what you're saying. They don't want to take what you're selling. They don't want to hear what you're saying and teaching them, and they reject you pretty easily. And if this proverb rings true, uh, you're, you're coming up against more skepticism and rejection than belief. For whatever reason, our family knows us best. The people that grew up with Jesus knew him very well. They know how to push all of your buttons. They know the details about you that most people don't. And so when they hear your testimony, perhaps, and the good news of Christ's life and death for sinners, they're, again, comfortable with rejecting what you have to offer. This made me wonder, and I often wonder, what it's like to grow up in Louisville or a town like Louisville where you grow up in the faith with many of the same people your entire life. You go to school with the same friends and classmates. You start to work with the same neighbors and your growth and faith in Christ. I, I, I wonder if that is difficult. We all change. We all grow. And as we grow in that town where everyone knows us, they know all the things about you that you don't want people outside of this town knowing. It affects how we relate to others and I'm just interested in that. I imagine it would be difficult. I did not grow up in a setting like this, in a town that wasn't, it was a different kind of town, so I didn't have to worry about that. Anyways, Jesus is marveling at his hometown, his neighbors and his friends and his family. If you have been reading through Mark or hearing some of these sermons, you know that just last week, the weeks before, Jesus restored a man possessed by over 2,000 demons. So Jesus might be thinking, a man possessed by 2,000 demons who was 
at one time shackled in the tombs, people wanted to do everything they could to get rid of this man. He was quicker to believe and trust in me than my hometown family and friends who know me far better than that man. So what's going on here? Jesus is marveling at this unbelief, which is the second point, marveling at unbelief. As verse 6 says, he marveled because of their unbelief. Verse 6, we come across this word marveled. We come across this word four times in Mark, and this is the only time when Jesus is doing the marveling. What causes Jesus to marvel, you might ask? Well, it's unbelief. He doesn't marvel at the depths of their sinful depravity, of the evil acts that they do, have done, and will do. He marvels at their unbelief. Perhaps, as one commentator says, if only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they might believe. Or perhaps God has too closely identified with the world and with their lives to recognize in Jesus that he is God in the flesh, the Messiah. God came down to the dirt and the dust and the ordinariness of this world to live among his people as a humble carpenter. And the scandal of the Christ, the scandal of Jesus, is that which is, if you've come to an evening worship service, I think last week or the week before, we, the, the pastor who was preaching talked about the, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God being folly to the world. The scandal of Jesus is that in the wisdom of God, he sent his son to live on this earth. And that is absurd to people who would not believe Jesus was tempted in every way that we are but didn't sin so that he could redeem us from our sin and present us holy and blameless to God the Father. And so the greatest stumbling block to faith is often the fact that God became a simple man, a man who can bleed, a man with feelings and emotions, with a family and friends and neighbors. What kind of almighty God does this? What kind of glorious and powerful God does this? I would say, and the Bible would say, a God who loves sinful people so much that he wants to represent them down to the very last detail to redeem them from the penalty of sin by his own blood. So for Jesus to marvel, something must be truly spectacular. Something must be truly amazing for Jesus to marvel, and unbelief fits that bill. You might be asking yourself, unbelief? That seems actually pretty reasonable to me. I thought unbelief was reasonable. Belief in God, many will say today, is not reasonable. That there are too many data points and arguments that point away from God than they do that point towards God. An old pastor and theologian, J.C. Ryle, said this. He said, Of all spiritual diseases by which fallen man is afflicted, there is none so truly marvelous and unreasonable as unbelief. There is, he'll go on to say, there is no 
unbelief in the grave. If you read the New Testament, you'll see in James how demons believe in God and shudder. And of course, we saw in the last chapter of Mark that these thousands of demons that Jesus cast out of the man knew who Jesus was. They certainly believed in God. But Jesus' hometown does not believe. They do not believe in him, what he has come to do, his identity. And they are quick to do this. And so, in a way, this is Jesus' hometown friends and family and neighbors. In a way, they are arrogant. And it's also deeply saddening. As you and I know, if we humbly admit it, we don't know very much about anything in any real depth. There might be some things we know a lot about, but if we get down to it, we don't know a lot about reality in the world and our our bodies even and yet we're content to believe many people are content to believe without a shadow of a doubt that God does not exist and that God could not exist perhaps there are those of you who hold that science will give us the answers we need to all of reality to all of life itself we know science changes at light speed, and I was recently, some of you heard about the news of the James Webb Telescope. I think I've mentioned it before. But it made the news, uh, one, for its beautiful pictures of the stars and galaxies and the universe, but it made the news mainly because it was forcing scientists and astronomers to change their conception of the universe. One scientist said that our Our previously favored picture of galaxy formation in the early universe must be revised. So I ask, is it logical or illogical to base your understanding of reality on science when we know that it changes so rapidly and so consistently? Of course, we find in our world today, you and I in every sector of our lives, every sphere of our lives, we find unbelief. There is unbelief everywhere in our culture, in our society, across the world. Smart people who have smart arguments about why the Bible isn't trustworthy or why God doesn't exist, um, arguments that you can't even answer back to, uh, they are everywhere, and it's discouraging And many people begin to wonder if it's worth studying the Bible, if it's worth attending worship and being part of a church, if it's worth going to God in prayer. One of my favorite accounts of someone's coming to belief in God and in Christ is uh, from a man named Cornelius Van Til. And this guy is as smart as his name sounds. Um, he was a professor at Princeton University about, I don't know, 50 to 100 years ago, something like that, somewhere in that range. Uh, he said this, and this is really, I think, really insightful and still applies to us today. He said this, the fact that so many people are placed before the evidence for God's existence and yet do not believe in him 
has greatly discouraged us. Anxious to win your goodwill, we have again compromised our God. Noting the fact that men do not see, we have conceded that what they ought to see is hard to see. In our great concern to win men, we have allowed that the evidence for God's existence is only probably compelling. And this is his last point. He says, From that fatal confession, we have gone one step further down to the point where we have admitted, or virtually admitted, that it is not really compelling at all. So Van Til makes the point that in our effort to share the gospel to a skeptical world, we've become less compelled by it ourselves. In an effort to win others, we have bought into this idea that it isn't actually reasonable to believe in God, let alone Jesus Christ. Our culture believes, many people in our culture believe that Christianity is backwards, that it's a joke, but we know statistically that Christianity is growing across the world. Jesus is as compelling now as he was 2,000 years ago, and I would say even more compelling. So maybe you've been a Christian for some time. You believe not only that God exists, but that he has sent his son to die for your sin, to live in your place. But you struggle with doubt. You struggle with many doubts, perhaps. You should know that Jesus does not mock your doubts. He doesn't punish you for having doubts. It's not sinful to have doubts, and he isn't surprised by your doubts. He has compassion for you. He knows it's difficult to believe today in our world. John 20, Jesus says this. He says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So Jesus knows, and he will not leave you in your doubts. He will come near to you so that you bring them to him in detail and talk with him, and he will be with you in those. So I want to look at three applications based on this. And the first is that, really building off of what I've just said, that God has promised that when we seek him, when we seek understanding, we will find him. Listen to Proverbs chapter 2. It says, If you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search, search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It then says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. So if you seek the wisdom of God, if you bring your doubts to God, if you bring a desire to know God and his son Jesus, he will give you this understanding. That is a promise 
of great worth. Understanding and wisdom and faith come from God. They are gifts from God. And so we learn that doubts and struggles to understand are different than unbelief. Doubts are different than unbelief. Unbelief is a heart that's closed off to God, to Jesus, to his word. And Jesus marvels at unbelief. And he went the length of the cross to show you how much he cares for you, to show you how great your need is. And there's a warning for those who do not believe, who have closed off their hearts to Jesus. Later on in that chapter in Proverbs, it says, For the upright will inherit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. And so Jesus has not left you to yourself, to your doubts, to your unbelief even. He calls out to you this morning in his word to know him and to believe in him. So next point, next application. When people come into contact with Jesus, as we see in our passage, they're either drawn to him or they're pushed away. There's really only two reactions to to Jesus, which is to have an open heart or to be closed off toward him. Paul says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Only God knows those people who are drawn to him and who are not. And rest assured that if you are drawn to Christ, he will not only give you faith, but complete your faith. Or we can put it in the words of Van Til. He says this, Only the great physician, through his blood atonement on the cross, and by the gift of his spirit, can take those colored glasses off and make you see facts as they are, facts as evidence, as inherently compelling evidence for the existence of God and his son, Jesus. Lastly, God desires to bring about in each one of his people a faith that isn't surprised when people believe. God wants to give you faith and understanding in him so that you aren't surprised when people believe. Let me explain that. To be more like Christ is to be surprised when people don't believe. The kind of faith that God is building in his people is the faith that treasures Jesus so much that it would be absurd to live life without him. To understand reality without God would be absurd to God's people. And so we can approach God and pray and ask him to give us the joy of, of our salvation. There is a, a prayer in the Bible that says, Restore to us the joy of our salvation, the knowledge of God's love and his grace for us. We ought to pray that God would plant the news, the good news of Christ's sacrifice for sinners so deep in our hearts that when we talk with others, we can't help but share with them 
about who God is and what he is doing in our lives and in their lives. So as we go about the world, we are, God's people are, those who come to Christ in faith, are the fragrance of Christ to the world. And so God wants to give you faith, a faith that is strong, so that when you go out into the world, you are not surprised by belief. I'm sorry, surprised. Yes, that is what I meant to say. When you aren't surprised by belief, but you marvel at unbelief because you know how good God is and you know how powerful and gracious he is and that we go out with a confidence that he is at work. So that's what we're going to pray for. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this passage and the challenges it brings to us. Uh, There's more to say about it, more to ponder. God, I pray that you would teach us this morning from it. Lord, I pray that as you have pursued us in Christ, that we would pursue others in the same way. That we would marvel in the gospel so much that we would marvel when that news can be met with unbelief or apathy. God, you are doing a great work. So encourage our hearts. It is hard to believe in a society that hates you so much, that thinks it's ridiculous to be a Christian. So God, would you help us not to have hearts that are uh, angry, but hearts that are so full of your love and grace that we cannot wait to show others who you are and what you're doing, to show others your goodness. God, we pray all of these things, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We have an opportunity to participate in the Lord's table, and this is the uh, sign and seal of the gospel to us. Um, I would invite you to stand And we'll sing the first three verses of hymn 253 as we prepare the Lord's table. Would you stand and sing hymn 253, verses 1 through 3?
You may be seated. Please listen to the words of institution from Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus Christ is the host of this table spiritually. He is with us as we enjoy the sign and seal of his grace to us. So as we are reminded of his love, he is reminding us by the bread and by the juice that he really lived, that he really died, that he really rose from the grave to give us the hope of eternal life, the guarantee of life with him. So this table is for the strengthening of your faith. It's for the encouragement of your heart. Jesus gives us this table to calm our doubts, to give us clarity and understanding of the significance of the gospel, of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for sinners. With his body and his blood, he has saved you and is saving you, Scripture says. His body is signified in the bread and it was broken in the place that you should have been for your sins on the cross. His blood is signified in the juice that was poured out for the forgiveness and the covering of your sins. He gave up his life so that you would have it. If you're a member of this church or another and you're in good standing, uh, I invite you to come and enjoy this table or I guess receive this table as it comes by you. If you are not a Christian, or if you've not yet put your faith in Christ, or you don't understand the significance of this table, I ask that you would pass from participating. But you could instead write some questions down. You could instead pray to ask God for understanding. and He will give it to you. If you trust in Christ, this table is for you. It's for your faith. It's for your heart. Uh, Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this table. Uh, We are grateful for a physical sign of your love for sinners, that when we eat this bread and drink this cup, our hearts are encouraged by you and by your spirit. So would you be honored as we celebrate this table, as we take it in? Lord, we thank you again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The elders will distribute the bread, and once everyone's been served, we will eat together as one body. We'll do that now.
I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The body of Christ broken for you. Let's eat together. In the same manner, Jesus took the cup. And having given thanks as we've done, he gave it to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Once again, the elders will pass out the juice and once everyone's been served, we'll drink together as one body.
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Christ's blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's drink together. Let's pray. God, how wonderful it is, how sweet it is to enjoy this table that you've given us. Encourage our hearts and strengthen our faith as we go this morning. As we go from here, would you uh, give us hearts that are bold and that are expectant of your grace and mercy to be shown to our neighbors, to our friends, to our coworkers, to everyone you put in our path. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand for the last part of this hymn we were just singing, which is hymn 253. Let's stand and sing verses 4 and 5 as we close our service. Receive God's blessing as you go and respond in faith with your amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.